could shine between the lines if you would let yourself go find some place you know you can use your words use your hands you can change the world just pretend express yourself take a chance and you'll see who you'll be it's time to express yourself where teens talk and the world listens Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on-air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. Never let a stumble in the road be the end of your journey. Hello and welcome to Express Yourself, for a program by, for, and with creative young people. A platform to give teens a voice right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. From Cynthia Bryan, creator and producer of Express Yourself and Star Style Productions, we bring this program to the airwaves as an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, a top nonprofit honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. Now, uh, before we get started in today's show, Be The Star You Are volunteers and I want to urge you to check out our website at btsya.org and go to the events tab to find exciting events we have coming up and also visit us at expressyourselfteamradio.com to check out past editions of our show. In today's segment, we will have our host Asia Gonzalez who will be talking about human trafficking and the detrimental after effects of it. Hello, Asia. Hi, Great to be on the show again. It's been quite a while. Um, I think that this segment is a great uh, kind of headway into what we will be talking about the rest of the show. Um, and what we're talking about is uh, human trafficking and essentially what happens after, you know, the survivors are done with their with what's been happening to them. So with human trafficking, it's a global crime that is constantly happening around us and even in our own communities, even though we may not realize it. And believe it or not, this industry makes roughly $150 billion a year. And because human trafficking is not necessarily talked about as often as all of the other atrocious events you see on the news, many people don't really understand what it is along with the physical physical and psychological impacts, as well as the social impacts it can have on an individual afterwards. Uh, Really, the aftermath of human trafficking is just as traumatizing as the experience itself. After these individuals are done, you know, going through what they just went through, they kind of don't really have an idea of how to mesh into society again. Um, They've been ripped from their families and friends and thrown around to different areas. Uh, With human trafficking, they don't necessarily stay in one place. They're usually jumping from state to state or from country to country, and they are never in one place for too long. So they're constantly moving. They're constantly in new areas. They're never able really to adapt. Um, And these individuals experience a tremendous amount of physical and mental abuse uh, with lasting effects that could follow them forever, even after their exploitation ends. So whether they're being trafficked for labor or exploitation or sexual exploitation, they're usually controlled through violence. Um, and with labor trafficking victims, which we don't really hear about a whole lot as much as uh, sex trafficking, um, that's what happens with labor trafficking is that these people are promised a job or an opportunity 
given to them that will take them away from their their poverty uh, stricken life, you know, if they're in an area that doesn't really have a whole lot of money or if they're in a third world country in a small town and they are um, not making enough money and they see this promising ad saying that, oh, hey, come work as a waitress or, you know, come do this job and just pay this amount of money and we'll fly you out and we'll give you um, essentially a place to live and a way to get there to start that job. Well, what happens after this is that these people are then taken from the landing, like they took a plane and they land and they're thinking that they're going to one area, but they're in reality, the trafficker is taking them either to be sold off for labor trafficking or um, sex trafficking. And usually labor trafficking victims experience harsh conditions with limited breaks in between work. Um, The majority of these people are women, and they work in sweatshops alongside children. They don't get breaks. They work long hours. They're not given enough food or water, and they're pretty much worked until they can't work anymore. Um, Victims of sexual exploitation also experience physical abuse as well. This could be from a violent pimp or, as they call them, johns. Um, It could be violence that they experienced when they were kidnapped or taken somewhere against their will when they expected to be taken somewhere else. This also goes alongside with the promise that labor traffic victims experience as well with job promises. Um, A woman will see, you know, in in a country that is poverty-stricken, she'll see this ad for a job opportunity and think, hey, I should jump on that. You know, it'll be better than what I'm experiencing here. And the person that she is in contact with will tell her, give us X amount of money and we will cover your travel and your living expenses and you'll be working this job. When in reality, what will happen is once she arrives to her destination, they will then take her to another area and uh, tell her that she must um, work as a sex worker against her will to kind of pay off a debt, um, even though she already paid them money to be taken somewhere for her new job. So this is where it all starts. Um, they then experience physical abuse when their jobs limit their caloric intake and water. That happens a, a lot as well. They are not given enough food or water. Um, and they also experience physical abuse when they are forced to sleep on the ground without a blanket. There are so many harsh conditions that these people are experiencing when they're being trafficked like this. And there are many ways these human beings face violence and physical damage um, throughout this exploitation. Uh, Human trafficking victims are also subject to mental abuse constantly throughout their exploitation. Their traffickers usually use threats of physical violence um, enforced upon the victim or the victim's family. They are also threatened with uh, murder if they don't comply with this person. They're constantly being brainwashed. Um, They are also usually secluded without the opportunity or environment to form real human connections like we can um, within our daily lives. This is to essentially isolate the victim, to make them feel like they're dependent and condition them to think that they are unable to go anywhere without a bodyguard because they're most usually under lock and key. They're also kept a close eye on and almost always in the presence of a bodyguard as well. And this kind of creates the beginning steps of Stockholm Syndrome which is a mental illness that many of the victims fall prey to. And essentially, it's all about conditioning. Conditioning is essentially when these individuals are brainwashed into becoming dependent on the pimp who is using them. 
And really, it just comes down to the need for survival because they think, well, this person is providing shelter, food, and water for me, so now I'm dependent. Um, and when these individuals are freed from their exploitation, they have a hard time connecting with others because of many of the mental disorders that they develop throughout um, the years or months or however long they spent um, as a trafficking victim. Uh, they develop trust um, issues, they develop anxiety issues, and almost always PTSD disorders. Uh, this is very common in human trafficking survivors, according to many physical uh, psychological studies. In an article that I found by BJ Psych International, it was found that symptoms of anxiety, depression, and PTSD were reported in the majority of the victims, which were female, and a significant percentage of the men who were impacted as well. And that many people forget that it's also men who experience uh, sex trafficking as well. It's not just women. Um, there are a lot of male, there are a lot of young boys who are falling victim to this industry, and while a majority of them are female, there are a large uh, percentage of victims who are male as well. And these people are definitely impacted uh, with many mental disorders afterwards. Um, in an article called Mental Health and Human Trafficking, Responders Responding to Survivors' Needs, um, this is a good article to read if you guys kind of want any information on really what happens when these people leave their exploitation and kind of what happens and it really will allow you to understand how to connect with someone if you ever come in contact with somebody who has experienced this. Um, this will kind of give you an understanding of what they're going through and how they're feeling. Um, and it could also give you some tips on how to speak to that person as well uh, as help them. But in the article, it's called uh, Mental Health and Human Trafficking, Responding to Survivors' Needs, in case anybody wants to look it up. Uh, it explains that there are significant signs of mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, Stockholm Syndrome, and psychotic disorders, and they develop depression and self-harm habits. Um, mood disorders are also common among human trafficking survivors, as well as sleeplessness, which, it also, which can also majorly affect human, uh, mental health. Sleep has a large impact on your mental health, and the majority of them, since they have so many issues um, with anxiety, uh, depression, uh, eating disorders, you know, their sleep is majorly impacted as well. So I was kind of looking around and, and looking for some information on what people can, can do, you know, the knowledge that we can spread to our listeners uh, on what really needs to be done about this. And it's preventative awareness. Knowledge will always help you uh, in case you feel like you really have no control over what's going on. You think this is such a big issue. You know, what can I do as one person? There's a lot you can actually do. So what, what I really focus on, um, as well as the charity um, that is tied to my name, which is called She Is Worth It, uh, we're getting that going again, but it is... It really focuses on preventative awareness, really educating people on what human trafficking is, what happens, the statistics, you know, all this, all this information that will really help you understand what's going on. And it really gives you some resources as well on who to support and donate to. Um, and there are many organizations you can donate to help this cause, such as shelters and churches who dedicate their time to nursing these survivors back to health and really giving them a stable environment to live in. Um, and you can also be looking at a human trafficking victim and not even realize it. I found some uh, 
organizations that have centers set up around the country to help these people. And one of them I found is called the Hope Project, whose mission is to set up homes or rehab centers dedicated to mentoring them. And a good website for them would be hopeprojectsusa.org. And they do have an opportunity for you to donate if you guys want to check that out. Another one is the Centers for Youth and Families. Their website is centersforyouthandfamilies.net. I'm sure they also have another tab as well to kind of donate or, or see what you can do to help their cause. And the third one that I found is called uh, University of Maryland Safe Center for Human Trafficking Victims. Um, and this, they really have a lot of uh, mental health resources, legal resources, and uh, as well as uh, emergency response services for, and needs such as clothing, shelter, and uh, food. Um, and their website is umdsafecenter.org. All right. Thank you so much, Asia, for this very informational segment. And this is undoubtedly a very serious issue. And we, you know, we need to gain a lot of awareness for this issue because it's occurring not only in our country, but it's occurring all over the world. And so many people are affected. Um, So my first question for you is, what steps do you think we as a society need to take in order to gain awareness and to basically stop human trafficking from occurring? So really, it's very hard to just up and stop something like this because it's so widespread, and there are a lot of factors that fall into why human trafficking is a thing, such as poverty, uh, money, many big-name politicians, uh, corporation owners are also uh, take part in this kind of industry. You may not realize it, but there may be politicians out there um, that you support that take take part in this kind of industry, which is absolutely disgusting. But I found some information from the United Nations um, that they really uh, focus on what's called, and as well as the U.S. State Department and the United Nations, they suggest what's called a 3P approach, um, and it's really prevention, prosecution, and protection. And what do these three Ps mean? Um, there are many things that go into the first P, which is prevention. It's a little hard to make sure that there is prevention everywhere for each individual to become part of human trafficking. Um, however, the first step is very important, which is educating yourself, which means knowing the signs of trafficking, knowing how people become dragged into this industry. And the next step is to really, I encourage everybody to pressure your elected elected officials in office to do something more. We need more information out. We need more people talking about this. We have too many things that we're distracted by on social media and even the news in general. There are so many more important things that we could be talking about, uh, but we just don't. And as a society, we need to pressure our offices to really step up and figure out what we need to do to help us eradicate human trafficking. And the next one is prosecution. Uh, mostly these victims are not really approached with three Ps. They're approached with uh, the three Ds, which is detention, deportation, and disempowerment. Uh, most of the time, these victims are treated like criminals, even though they're being forced to commit something illegal against their will, which, of course, that makes sense, of course. Uh, but really, what we need to be doing is um, we need to be prosecuting the perpetrators. We need to be treating these people as victims 
and as human beings, not as criminals, uh, who are really being forced into this industry. They're not normally these people don't go into this kind of industry willingly. Um, and the majority of the time, these women that you see on the streets, the, the cops or the police force will stop them, and they don't necessarily ask the right questions. And these girls are conditioned to really dodge the normal questions that they're being asked or give a rehearsed answer. So what we really need to be doing is kind of approaching it in a way that will help them feel safe, um, help them feel that, you know, we are here to help them and, you know, they just, they just have to give us information. They have to help us help them. Um, and I think we really need training in our task forces to help people understand that these women are not criminals. They're human beings as well and they're in a horrible situation and they really need our help. And the last P is protection. Uh, we really need to be protecting our children, our friends, our family members, and this starts really with the mental health of our people. And one of the major outlying factors of victims is mental health. Many of the individuals uh, had mental health problems even before they were forced into the industry of sex trafficking. And I feel like we just really need to be worrying more about each other um, and really supporting each other. And, you know, and that means treating these victims as criminals and gross people or just even treating them as out as uh, outsiders really needs to be put to a stop. You know, how are we solving any problems by throwing these girls and boys in jail for doing something that they're forced to do? It really doesn't need, it really doesn't make sense to me. So I feel like what we really need to do is just be supportive, educate ourselves and really push our uh, our officials to, to do something more essentially. Mm, definitely. We need to, you know, give support to these people. And um, how do you think we can help the victims who have unfortunately gone through this physical and mental abuse? How do you think we can, you know, provide support to them? So a major a major way uh, that we can essentially provide support is it may not seem like it's doing a whole lot, but donations. Donation to any sort of organization that, that you can find that have support centers around uh, the country. These people, and usually it's a lot of churches that get involved in this. So what they do is they have centers that they set up, and they're meant for the mental health and education of these girls and boys who come out of this industry because they've been stuck in that environment for so long that it's kind of like a war hero coming back from war where they don't really know how to mesh in with society um, anymore. So they really use these centers, one, to give them shelter, food, water, clothing, you know, all the essential survivor needs, but it also helps them really gain themselves back. They gain the confidence and the assurance to go out into the world again and really support themselves. Um, and it's, it's really a rehabilitation center for these people afterwards. So if you guys see any sort of organizations, I suggest, I really encourage you as listeners to do some research on this to see if you can find any organizations that stand out to you that you would like to support. And even if you don't have money, maybe put the word out that this organization is needing some help. You know, the more that we talk about it, the more that we can figure out what to do to defeat this industry. Definitely. We need to support these victims through any kind of, you know, any sort of donation. And we need to speak out Mm -hmm. as a society. This is, you know, 
We do. It's unacceptable, and we need to speak out if we ever see anything. And I remember traveling to London, and near one of the bus stops, there was this poster, and it was a picture of, like, chains on someone's hands, and it said, if you see something, you have to say something. And, you know, we need to do Mm -hmm. that as a society. And thank you so much, Asia, for this informational segment. You know, this is a very important issue, and it's great that you gave us a lot of insight on that. Um, make sure to watch Be The Star You Are's fun and informative videos at youtube.com slash be the star you are. Please pick up our new anthology, Be The Star You Are, Millennials to Boomers, celebrating gifts of positive voices in a changing digital world at starstylestore.net. I'm Siri Panindra. And I'm Asia, and this is Express Yourself. Be sure to stick around for more on the theme of suicide prevention. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back to the theme of suicide prevention. Our program is Express Yourself, giving youth across the world a voice to be listened to. I'm Brigitte Gia. And I'm Siri Panindra. And in this segment, we will be interviewing our wonderful guest, Leanne Hull. Within months of her son, Andy's transition, she has established Andy Hull's Sunshine Foundation in 2013 to raise awareness of suicide prevention while providing coping skills to deal with life challenges. The foundation has sparked a worldwide movement with their yellow You Matter wristbands. Leanne has written a book about the journey, How to Live When You Want to Die. Hello, Leanne. Thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. Oh, thank you, ladies, for having me. All right. I just, I just wanted to start off. Um, Leanne, you have been through one of the most life-changing and challenging experiences a mother could ever go through. Um, can you please inform the audience about your story? Yeah, that's uh, really an understatement, actually. There really aren't any words to describe that kind of a loss. It's so traumatic. It, uh, it's beyond anybody really understanding what it's like unless you've experienced it. So Andy was my fourth child, and he was 16 years old when he died by suicide. 
he was an amazing, um, just an amazing kid and full of life, loved life, and this was just such a, a sudden shock and, you know, devastated, of course, our family. Uh, my husband and I have been married for 39 years, and this was, couldn't have been anything more important to us than raising our kids. And so we're, you know, two very focused, loving parents. And Andy came from a just an amazing background, and uh, this was obviously very traumatic and shocking. Absolutely. I'm really sorry for your loss. That's, Thank you. I, I can't, obviously, I can't even imagine it, that, that as, a, as a mother, that just, that must really hit hard. And so a lot of, a lot of individuals, you know, when they go through such, such a hurdle, and, you know, like, you know, such a tragedy, they tend to retreat within themselves and kind of, you know, shut out the world or, or tend to heap blame on themselves and get into their heads. But you chose to write about it and to share what you went through and what happened with other people. How, how were you able to make that transition? How did you do it? It, it seems incredible, almost unfathomable. Well, it's interesting. I really didn't write about it until three years into my journey. It's been six and a half years since Andy passed. And what I did do immediately was establish the foundation. And I started speaking at Andy's school four months after he passed. So I gave my first presentation to 3,000 kids just four months later. And my whole focus really early on was not so much about anything other than wanting to make sure that none of his friends followed in his footsteps or our family. And so that became really my focus and also really wanting to make sure that, you know, that Andy wasn't forgotten and that he wasn't remembered by how he died but by how he lived. And so those were my primary focus points, which then, you know, surviving the next few years, the first few years, was really what I wrote about then. So the writing wasn't so much my journey to begin with. My writing was about how I survived the journey. Because I really, I mean, just like the title of the book, How to Live When You Want to Die, I mean, I really did, uh, that's all I wanted to do every day was just to be where Andy was. And so it took an immense amount of a variety of coping skills that I already had, plus, you know, re, you know, developing and learning new ones because I didn't have all the things that I needed in order to survive this journey. So that became a, a really important mission for me was to seek out and find new coping skills that would help me maneuver and, and live a healthy and full life. Oh, that's that's definitely great that you went to Andy's school and you wanted to make sure that you know, everyone else that, you know, that they're going to live and that's really meaningful. And I just wanted to ask, in what ways do you still feel connected to your son? Um, I know it has been, you know, quite a few years ever since that happened. And how do you, how do you feel a connection with your son right now? Well, you, I think it was you that uh, mentioned about that he transitioned. Somebody mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. of the segment, and that is truly, you know, before he moved to heaven, I really thought of death as a final event until, of course, 
we you, you meet in heaven again. But what I understand now is that Andy is alive in spirit, and he's here with me. So I sense him all the time. Actually, I was at the beach today and really felt you know, his presence with me, and, and I talk to him all the time, and I get signs from him. So uh, it's a different kind of relationship that he and I have now, but still a relationship. Absolutely, and that'll always be there. I think because you know it's it's interesting because you're you're out here spreading you know peace and joy and happiness and getting that out to people who are maybe going through a similar experience. And you know, you mentioned that he was really he was really all about joy, and so I think that right. you know that connection is is <laughs> strong and growing. But you know, I wanted to ask I when I was sixteen. Or so I, I remember. I, for me, it was a it was an eating disorder that I was struggling with, and kind of body image, and and you know just the numbers crunching, and really just not being in a in a good mental state. But I was always told that it was it had something to do with the teenage hormones, and after this developmental stage, you know I'd be fine. I'd get get my outlook back. I'd get a positive outlook on life, and this was just what was typically happening in the teenage years. And so, you know, having gone through everything that you've gone through and, and, you know, what would you tell teens who are, who are told every day that this is just a transition? Like, how would you, how do you think you would bring them out of that? Well, I do talk about that quite a bit. I, I mean, I think that's one of the major challenges is that so many of the things that we see in our teens could be easily misconstrued as normal teenage angst, as Andy's could. And there are a lot of different things that can trigger a moment, and it can be just that moment, a moment of pain that, for especially for a teenager, you don't have any long-term vision. It's hard to imagine that it isn't the end of the world because you haven't lived long enough to understand that you can survive life's traumatic events. As you get older, you begin to have a reference point, and you can look back and say, oh, I did survive that. And so I recognize that when I'm talking to, to teenagers, that for them not being invited to prom or being um, dumped at homecoming or whatever that, or your parents' divorce, to them that's just as devastating as the loss of my son is because it's all a matter of perspective. And so really talking to them on that level, that's what I do is share with them my vulnerability to help give them insight into that this was the most devastating experience, and then we can teach coping skills. Here are some of the things that you can do and have a plan of action. You know, what are some tangible things that you can help to maneuver through the traumas you're going to face? And then teaching our teens that failure and loss are a part of life, that you should be expecting them. We focus so much on success. And and while that's good, and, and of course we want to succeed, we also need to be prepared for the inevitable failure and loss and help people to understand that that's just part of the journey. That's how you learn and how you grow. Oh, yes. Um, I actually remember a few years ago, um, my grandpa passed away. Um, and, you know, that was just a really hard time for me. And my grades were just going down and I felt like the world was ending. It was just terrible. And it's mm-hmm. so true that failure is just a part of life. And 
you know, it's not the end because I have, you know, I have been through a lot. And, you know, going back to how you said that you're having connections with Andy, I always feel my grandfather's presence with me and I feel his blessings. Um, So I definitely relate to you. And I know that Andy and my grandpa, they're both in a very happy place right now. And I relate to you, Leanne. And and um, while those things are, are true, that I can sense Andy and you can sense your grandfather, for me still, and it's, it's a really important um, just, you know, thing for people to understand, is that doesn't change the fact that I miss him terribly. And so when we're talking about loss and grief, whether it's a teenager or whether it's an adult, we live in a society where we expect instant fix and that we're not allowed to grieve and that it's not okay to be sad. And so... Nobody knows how to sit in that space of sadness and grief and loss, and they don't have the patience to go through that process. And that is a really important thing is to recognize that there is no fix. Like no one was going to be able to fix the fact that my kid isn't here. No one can fix that. And and especially with the platitudes, you know, that people want to say, oh, you know, just, and even like what you said that, that I can sense Andy. Yes, I can sense Andy, but that doesn't take away my emotional pain. Now, learning how to manage it is a different thing. So I really, really stress that in teaching people that you're not going to fix your loss or your pain. You're going to learn to manage it. You're going to learn to carry it differently. You're going to maneuver with it. And that's important um, And I think that that's why people get so discouraged with their grief is because they put a time limit on it. They put a a comparison of mine's different than yours. Everybody's different. And it's this is your own personal journey of loss and grief and trauma, whatever you may be going through. And to not invalidate someone else's pain, that's so important. That's so true. You know, pain will always exist and it's all about how we manage it. And, you know, after my grandpa passed away, that's when I actually started meditating and kind of connecting and grounding myself. And I feel pain will never go away. It's all about how you manage it. I definitely agree with that 100%. Um, And do you find that time... Do you find... Sorry, Leanne. Do you find that time has made the work of this journey less difficult? Did you find time, you know, kind of helping you heal in a way? I find that it's both. In one sense, it's obviously, I I feel a lot of joy. I have a full life and and it's softer. It, It is easier. I don't even like to say that word easier because what I will tell you is that in some senses, it's exhausting, too, because it does require a degree of work every day to manage my mental health. It's not something I really have to be vigilant about it. Um, I have to be aware of it, cognizant of it. It's not something I take for granted. I don't let things sneak up on me. And the dates, the things that can trigger it, the holidays coming up, Andy's angel date is coming up, uh, all of those things are all triggers that then you have to, you're in a different place where you go, oh, shoot, now I've got to manage this. And, and 
when you have Thanksgiving or Christmas and, and Andy's not there, you know, it's a constant. It doesn't matter how, lo- how long it's been. That's always going to be a trigger for something that you have to manage. So, yes, it's easier, and it's also exhausting. Absolutely. There is, you know, you can, you can do things to remedy the hole in your heart, but it never goes away. Right. So, you know, I, I wanted to ask why about see- sort of like, I, I know there's a, you know, when you're, when you're kind of in your day-to-day processes, it's hard to get yourself out of a loop of habit. Maybe you're thinking about, about what's going on and you're mulling over it and, you know, your brain kind of gets stuck on it. Um, and, and for a teen as well, you know, when, when we're in the moment and something bad has happened and we don't know how to put that to scale, we often start to fixate on it and don't know how to get out of it. So on like a, on a daily basis, what are some effective mental uh, methods that, that you've used to kind of get yourself out of a loop of, you know, negative thinking and, and everything weighing down on you? How do you get out of that uh, on sort of this, this daily scale? And there are a variety of things that I use. So just, so for anybody, one tool doesn't always work every day. So I have to use a variety of them. Sometimes I'll have to use a variety of them in the same day. And some of the things that I'll do is actually literally out loud, I'll say, stop. If I find myself, like you said, fixating or thinking or or remembering or image, you know, images floating through my head, if I can literally have to say, stop, that command tells, gives my brain a momentary break. And that gives me then a few seconds that when I've said stop, then I can decide, now what am I going to do next? Because just saying stop, I still now I've got stopped that loop, that process, but I've got to fill it with something different because there's now a void there or else that loop will start uh, spinning again or, or playing again. So walk, just taking a walk outside, putting on some particular, I have a particular playlist, a whole group of songs that I have pre-selected in advance that I know affect me in a positive and uplifting way. And so I can put on any one of those songs. And again, it doesn't fix me, but it's going to provide me with a temporary bridge to help me get over to a place where I can make some different decisions about my emotional state. So at one point, you're responding on an emotional level of of that loop playing through your head. You're going to make a decision. You're going to make a command. You're going to use some of your coping tools to cross you over to a different place where you can process that emotional pain or sorrow and look at it differently. And enough practice with that, it's, it begins to rewire your brain, your thinking, so that then it becomes a more natural and a more easy, easier transition to shift from that emotional pain over to a positive decision-making place. Um, exercise, reading, music, uh, Maybe you need to make a phone call and call a friend and say, hey, I'm, I'm in a really, I need to meet. I'm not, not feeling so good at the moment. But you need to do something to shift that place that you're at so that you can look at things differently. Mm, yes, it, it definitely takes time, but you will learn to cope 
with it and whether it's meditation or listening to a playlist like you said um, I feel we need to give ourselves a little time to kind of process it and you know just I totally understand and I wanted to talk about your foundation and do you mind talking about the You Matter bracelets and your um, organization and how it's spreading the word about suicide prevention awareness? Yeah, I love that. I the any time that I go out and I speak, I speak in schools, military bases, churches, constructions, you name it. I speak all over the country, and our message is that you matter. I mean, we talk about suicide prevention, we talk about some of the triggers, and then we talk about some coping skills. And we want to leave everybody with that message that while you may not feel like it at this moment, you matter to someone and you were created for a purpose here on the planet. And while we want you to have one wristband, we also encourage people when I'm at presentations to take an extra one because we want to empower you and tell you that you're the key to making a difference in the world as well, that you need to be that person that tells someone else that they matter to you. You may be that lifeline for someone else who's feeling lost and hopeless. And so literally our You Matter wristbands have been a tremendous ministry, if you want to say, and they've gone all over the world. So they, I've had requests for them from Australia Scotland, um, Nigeria, England, Cyprus. I mean, it's a lot, it's just been Canada. It's been amazing the response to these You Matter wristbands, which is just a part of our foundation. We have a curriculum as well, uh, Camp You Matter, and then we have a volunteer reading program called our Sunshine Readers. So lots of different ways to just try to reach out into the community and let people know that they matter. I, I hand out wristbands to... Um, a barista or somebody at the airport. I mean, wherever I can, and I can make that extra connection and tell someone, hey, you did a great job today. Thank you. You matter. And it's, it's interesting to see people's response when they receive a You Matter wristband. So I love that. Absolutely. That's incredible. I think that's the key, too, is, is just spreading that knowledge because we get so lost nowadays. There's 7.4 billion people in the world. We're all on social media. And so we all forget that we're, we're besides being fish in the sea, we're also our own individuals. And I yeah, think that's, I'm connecting. That's, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. The, the bracelets, I would say, you know, the fact that they've been all over the world, the fact that the act of giving someone a bracelet is making that connection. That interaction yeah. in itself is, is so powerful. You know, you have that bridge between two people, and then you pass on the message when you, when you show it, when you give it. I think that's pretty incredible. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of impact. I wanted to ask as well, you know, it's, it's amazing that we have these networks that you have provided us with these networks to get these messages across and make sure that everybody knows that they, they should have a high sense of self-worth. I wanted to ask about sort of the legislation part as well, um, where, where, you know, a lot of kids are going to public schools and they might not have access to programs because... You know, not a lot of policies have been passed in this regard. So has, has, have you and your foundation been, been able to change that in any way, sort of work with legislators to maybe put some programs into the public schools and, and make kids 
you know, feel more welcome in that environment? You know, uh, interesting, the public schools actually have right now quite a few more opportunities for programs than a lot of the other schools because there is some funding available. So we actually worked on two different bills. One was enacted into law in 2014, and then another one here just this last summer in 2019. So these bills, they do mandate that suicide prevention and education is a requirement for all educators. I mean, all, everybody, could be the bus driver, uh, the cafeteria worker, any anybody involved in the education process has to receive suicide education training. That being said, there still is no requirement that the students do. That That's one of the things that I love. What I do is when I do get that opportunity to do these assemblies and to be able to go in and speak to the student body and share our wristbands with them and help to teach coping skills and to help them to understand that they are the eyes and ears also of their classmates because they each they talk to each other in a way that that as an adult we don't necessarily hear and so the better educated that they are they're the ones that can also they're the front line they can save lives mm, yeah i i definitely agree i think it starts off at the schools and um, we need to provide this education for suicide awareness. And currently at my school, we have this health class and we briefly go over suicide, but I feel we need to go more in depth. And, you know, people, you know, we're not giving people a comfortable or like this opportunity to speak out. And I feel we really need to go in depth and um, stop it from there. And I know it's so hard to recognize when people are in trouble, but do you have any tips for how to identify when your friend or family member is experiencing this? Well, there's obviously the typical ones, the um, someone who's isolated or, you know, already seems depressed. But oftentimes these days, it's not, those signs are, are not the ones that are, it's just not so obvious or evident. But mm-hmm. with almost every student that I know that has passed by suicide, including Andy, they have told someone. They've, they've either tweeted it, they've put it on Snapchat, or they've actually said it to a friend. And so I tell kids, you know what? Their biggest fear is of tattling on their friend. And Andy had a couple of friends that knew that Andy was thinking about this, but they didn't know what to do with that information. And, of course, no one expects you to to understand what to do with that. That's why you have to tell someone else. So if you hear your friend or you think there's something going on, you have to tell an adult. Tell someone else who's better capable of finding the help from your friend. Put the friend before the friendship. You may risk losing that friend because they feel like you've tattled on them. But in the long run, first of all, they'll probably come back to being your friend. And secondly, you may have just saved their life. So always err on the side of caution. Listen more carefully. Listen to the things the, um, like Andy said, you know, he said, Mom, if I go before you, I want it to be a celebration. Okay, that's not like he's saying, I'm going to end my life. But it, it was. That was his goodbye to me. And so listening, learning to listen more carefully to what our friends and our, our family and, and what they're saying, those are really important 
And that, that comes from us learning to listen better with a, a deeper connection rather than those surface connections. So that's the key. That's one of the reasons I love the wristbands is it gives us an opportunity for a more in-depth conversation. Hey, you matter to me. What's going on in your life? And let's talk about it. And so I always share my, my wounds first, which allows someone else to feel comfortable with my vulnerability so that they can be vulnerable as well. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, that, that really does ring true is that we, we have a lot of surface level conversations and we mm-hmm. ask each other, how's, how, how's your day been? How's everything going? But it's, it's harder to open up those lines, uh, you know, those, those lines of conversation, discussion about what's really bothering you and what's, what's going on with the other person below that facade. And so for for kids who, you know, might not feel comfortable speaking about, you know, these sorts of subjects or how they're feeling, you know, what, what would you recommend as a resource? Are there, are there good crisis lines that kids can maybe call into? Or should they talk to a therapist? Should they talk to a counselor if they're maybe not comfortable with their parents knowing or some of their, you know, some of their teachers what should they do? All the above. Because for any one person, let's just say that you talk to, they go to a counselor and that didn't feel right. Well, that might not have been the right fit. So all of those opportunities are out there. There are teen lifeline crisis. There's crisis lines. There's text lines. There's the suicide hotline. There are counselors. There's therapists, parents, friends, parents, coaches. You name it. And what I would tell you is that if you don't get what you need from the first source, find another, you know, and just keep trying, keep talking. There will be someone who will really hear you if you just keep reaching out. And for uh, for everybody to understand that it's okay to not feel okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's no different than if you have a stomach ache or a cold or, or you've got something that you're not feeling well physically. This is the same from an emotional level, from a mental state standpoint, that we need to make that as okay to get mental health as we do physical health. And that happens by these types of things, like the conversations that the three of us are having. You know, it just continues to raise the awareness decrease the stigma and bring this out into the open where people feel more comfortable saying, hey, I'm not okay today. I think I need some help. Oh, yes. And like Brigitte was saying, we do have a lot of surface level conversations. And actually, my um, science fiction teacher, every morning, he always asks us, how are you doing? And he promotes like this mental awareness and he always genuinely asks us, how are we doing? And, you know, I feel like we need to find someone who we can share with. And if you don't find anyone, there are always these crisis hotlines that you can always go through. And do you have any suicide prevention resources that you recommend other than hotlines? Well, you can go on our website. We do have a list of some phone numbers and um the National Association, NAMI is a great one, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP. Those are organizations that have great 
Resources, NAMI, and AFSP. Those would be two that I would definitely recommend. Um, and then our website, which is andysunshine.com, you can find a list of resources there as well. Those would be places to start. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that those are out there and <laughs> available to you know, anyone who might need them, who might be going through a rough patch. And I, I wanted to go back really quick to what you were speaking, Leanne, about um, sort of the stigma that's attached to finding help. And so nowadays when we, when we think about going to a therapist or to a counselor, that, that stigma is attached there, it, the idea of just not being in your right mind. So to someone who's, who's feeling that way, what would you, what would you tell them? You know, specifically about getting a therapist. Like, if there's if there's some sort of family stigma attached to it, if the parents, um, I I come from an East Asian household, and there's this idea that that going to a therapist is, you know, is is categorizing you as mentally ill and is essentially just you know, defining you as someone who is not right. And that, that I feel like weighs upon people who have to deal with that stigma and discourages them from seeing a therapist. You know, what, what would you do to kind of help them get out of that viewpoint? That is a hard one. You know, there is still so much. I think that probably one of the reasons from the very moment that after Andy passed, you know, I made a point, I mean, even the very next day, I never shied away from saying my son died by suicide. I'm not ashamed of how he died. It's no different than cancer. So it begins with how we continue. We're not going to change decades, centuries of stigma attached to this word or mental health overnight. We're just not. But we are chipping away at it. And if we continue to talk about it out in the open like we are, then we're going to be able to provide that platform eventually to where it becomes part of the normal process. I always tell people, my daughter has diabetes, and I would never, I don't, she has to see an endocrinologist every three months, and I would never look down upon her for having to see an endocrinologist or having to take her insulin. It's part of her physical makeup, and um, that's just a normal process. In order for her to live, she has to have her insulin. She has to see the doctor, and same with the mental health. The brain is so complex. Why are we so afraid to think that everybody's brain... And it's influenced by so many factors every day. So we have all of these things coming at us that this brain has to process, and we're not robots. So at any given time, we're going to need a tune-up, you know, and that's okay. We need a tune-up just just like we do physically. Um, I I tell people my mental health, I'm vigilant about it. I'm in the driver's seat. It's my job to manage it. If you're in the passenger seat, then you're just the victim. You're just along for the ride. Exactly. And And you really got to just 
grab a hold of the situation. Well, you know, thank you so much, Leanne, for letting us know that we really have to, you know, take the wheel and get out there. Yeah. It was a really insightful and meaningful conversation, and I'm thank you so much for being on. Uh, audience, we're going to wrap it up today. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you. Make sure you go and check out Leanne's book and go to um, andysunshine.com. Make sure you visit the website and learn more about her work. Thanks so much. Um, as always, we give our thanks to Star Style Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be the Star You Are, and our Voice America Empowerment crew, especially our voice engineer, Josh. Thanks to our guests and reporters from across the world, and thank you to you, our listeners, for making us a top-rated program. Celebrate our 20th anniversary with us. I'm Brigitte Gia. And I'm Siri Panindra. You've been listening to Express Yourself, an on-air global community where teens talk and the world listens. For information on our creative community, charity efforts, and outreach programs, go to our main site at bethestarur.org. Be happy, stay strong, and be here. Speak up, speak out, and express yourself. Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself. Produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars that shine between the lines If you would let yourself